0: You're listening to Queers, a podcast about politics and culture with Simon Copland and Benjamin Riley. Uh wait, do we, how do we usually do this?
1: Uh I don't know. we we sort of we could just say you could just say now let's get back to the, to to the topic at hand or something if you want. I I originally I had myself doing the admin thing, so I had the the names the other way around, but now it's been screwed up.
0: Um blah, 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 blah. uh so now back to sex. Uh, so, no way, I don't like <laughs> that. that doesn't work. Um.
1: It's the 20th of February, 2018. I'm Simon Copland. And I'm Benjamin Riley. Welcome to Queers. Each episode we talk our way through questions on a theme, and this week we're talking about sex, sex, goddamn sex.
0: That is, uh, that is what we're talking about. Um, before we <laughs> jump into this week's topic, uh, just a, a brief notice about an event that we've got coming up, or that I've got coming up, rather. Uh, I've been asked to give a, a short talk as part of the Rising Minds lecture series, uh, which is an, an international lecture series based at a number of cities around the world where uh, each month they pick a topic and then people uh, in the different cities give a talk on the same topic and this month is the future of sex and sexuality. Um, and I'm giving a talk on, uh, respectability politics, which will probably surprise no listeners to this podcast. If you're in Sydney and you want to come along, the talk is on Thursday, the first of March, uh, at 8 a.m. until 9 a.m. at the Golden Age Cinema and Bar in Surrey Hills. Uh, so check that out. We will share the event to the queers social media pages um or you can head to the Rising Minds website and get more information there it would be great to to see some listeners along the last couple of weeks in Australian politics have been dominated by a good old sex scandal after it was revealed that Australia's deputy prime minister Barnaby Joyce is having a child with his former media adviser Joyce has been under immense pressure to resign since the revelation, particularly following the release of details which suggested he wrongfully assisted in getting his new partner a high-paying job.
1: Other coverage, however, has focused less on the potential corruption involved and more on the salacious details involved in the affair. Uh, this has led uh, to a response from the Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull, who announced a ban on ministers having sex with their staffers. In his announcement, Turnbull lamented the pain Joyce had caused his family, saying his actions were a shocking error of judgement.
0: In an article on the issue for The Guardian, journalist Gay Alcorn wrote, quote, in workplaces, I have seen many men taking young men who remind them of themselves under their wing, mentor them, play golf with them, go drinking with them, give them all kinds of opportunities not available to others, and cause considerable resentment among the rest of the staff. But that's fine. Sex, however, even a single mutually enjoyable romp, outrageous. End quote.
1: So today we want to ask: Why are we so hung up on sex? Why do we treat sex as more important than other ways of relating to people? And what do these hang-ups do to our sex lives, in particular for us queers?
0: So Simon, uh, to get started and to introduce the um, ridiculous and uh, funny hashtag that's been going around around the whole Barnaby Joyce affair, into the conversation, do you think a hashtag bonk ban for ministers makes
1: sense? Uh, No, I really don't. It's been kind of interesting to see quite a few people who said well this just makes logical sense you know employers should not be having sex with their employees uh and you know this is just a logical outcome from this what's happened here i don't think that bans on consensual sex are ever a good idea quite simply uh and for a couple of reasons firstly I think that they will not be effective in any way, if you even if you're trying to achieve a goal of, uh, you know, banning sex between ministers or stopping sex between ministers and their staffers because of the power dynamics that are involved, and we can go into that a little bit later. I don't think it will be. It will achieve anything. People have sex, people get around these sorts of bans all the time, and often in this situation, if you try and ban it, what the outcome can be is that the person who is in the least powerful position, uh, in this case a staffer most likely, will be the one who will suffer because of the ban, because they're the one who is easier to get rid of, and they're the easier one who is easier to push out, or the one who is easier to blame in these sorts of situations.
0: Which is which is not to say that that's that's ha- isn't happening and and wouldn't be happening under the existing rules, but yeah, I think you're right.
1: Yeah, I think it just sort of makes it. I think I think I think the situation what it, what it does is it means that. If a minister has has sex with a staffer, for example, and it's been banned, and therefore the minister's career is under threat because of that sexual activity, they're more likely to try and find ways to silence that staffer, uh, and they will have more power to do that than a staffer will to to sort of to speak back or to push back against a minister who is doing that. Or you might find situations where other ministers or other people in high powerful positions find out what's going on and to protect the minister do things to push out the staffer or the person who is in a lower position. And, and and it has been very clearly that is more likely to be a woman in these situations than it is to be a man. Um, I would I would argue in that it's more likely that a woman is going to be the person who will suffer under these sorts of situations. I think the the second reason I think the Bonk Ban is sort of a bad idea is that uh, when it comes to these situations, it also what will occur is that you'll have uh, a, a media, the media in particular, who will end up playing sort of the police of, um, of sect, of affairs, of ministers having affairs, and they'll be the one, and you've got a situation where now, because it's been, uh, sort of because policing sex between ministers and staffers has been legitimized, you're gonna s- see the potential situation where, uh, newspapers such as the the Herald Sun or the Daily Telegraph can sort of snoop around to find out who is having sex and publish front page news stories, like the first, the f- the, the one that was the first news story that sort of broke this affair, which was a photo of, uh, Barnaby Joyce's uh, former media-, media advisor, Vicky Campion, in the street, pregnant. Uh, and it was that became the sort of front page story. And again, that is the kind of thing that will likely impact people in, in less powerful positions and will impact uh, people like Vicky Campion, who in reality has done nothing wrong here, uh, has just and is pregnant is a pregnant woman who doesn't deserve to be on the front page of a newspaper. And when you ban sexual activities in these kind of ways, it gives license to people to police sexual activity that is consensual sexual activity. And I just don't think that can ever be a good outcome for our society.
0: Sure. Yeah. I mean, I agree, essentially. I think those are, those are, uh, pretty much the arguments that I think it was Catherine Murphy made in a pretty good, um, analysis yeah, piece yeah. for, for The Guardian. So it'd be worth kind of linking to, to that and to Gay Alcorn's piece as well. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I don't have all that much to add. I think a, a lot of the kind of left wing, uh, political pundits have, have condemned this move in pretty much all the ways that I would agree with it, you know, that it's kind of, Regressive, uh, social politics masquerading as, um, quote unquote feminism, which is, which is part of how it's been framed by the prime minister in, in making the ban, um, which, you know, seems, seems a bit silly. I think, like, broadly, you can link this to any sort of criminal moves to criminalize things. Not that this is a, a criminal thing, but, um, in that, yeah, when you ban things, particularly things, uh, to do with sex, doesn't stop the things from happening. It just kind of creates harms associated with those things that that maybe weren't there before or weren't as intense before.
1: Yeah, and I think I mean I think what's really interesting is you pointing out the uh, the sort of using feminism as an argument to back this up because I have seen I guess maybe not in terms of the uh, the bonk ban itself, but I have seen f- some feminists use. Not the corruption elements, but the affair elements To attack um, Barnaby Joyce in particular And uh, one example of that was an article from Clementine Ford uh, Which was titled something along the lines of uh, Barnaby Joyce does not understand marriage That really sort of attacked his character for having an affair And for the way he treated uh, his family in doing this It made judgments about the relationship he has, he had with Vicky Campion Saying something like uh, a, a 50-year-old man having sex with a 30-year-old woman is not love It's, um, it's a midlife crisis and it's really, for me, been disappointing to see sort of some, not all, but some social progressives uh, use this affair to sort of attack uh, the, 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 the sexual choices, I guess, of Joyce and his partner and to attack that relationship without actually knowing very much about it. And I think that is where I've seen some disappointing stuff from from my perspective that actually has been some left-wing moralising about about this affair and and, and using it as a way to sort of cast aspersions on Joyce's character. Now, I'm not a big fan of Joyce, and I think he's, you know, got some dodgy character, but I think that I'm not a big fan of using his sexual activity as a way to cast aspersions on his character either.
0: Sure. I mean, I think it's kind of tricky in, I mean, it's such a gross, the whole thing is gross, and it's such a- (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it really is. In some ways that we're doing a podcast episode about this but we're you know we're using it to we're using it to 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 kind of discuss some broader issues but um to kind of wade through the muck in the beginning it's not something i think anyone really um anyone with with any uh taste to use a very loaded term really wants to be um discussing in great detail and yet we we all are i think the the sort of added complication with all of this is the uh i think fair commentary about the fact that uh, Joyce was a big opponent of, uh, marriage equality when, when the, the postal survey was going on last year. He was very much, uh, against legalizing marriage equality. And uh, like, I don't know, it's, it's, it's kind of fair. I think on one level to go, you're making particular kinds of families and particular kinds of relationships more important, like more, you're saying that they have inherently more value than others. And then you're, you know, kind of, doing this in your own personal life i think it's very very difficult in practice to 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 say those sorts of things without it kind of again just looking like sex panic essentially
1: yeah yeah, yeah. and and i well, you know the way i've been thinking about that because i i agree and it was kind of my first reaction as well to 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 this is like well like look, look you know before to point out the hypocrisy that's going on here i think what i would like to see more of is sort of using this potential if you're going to if you're going to have that argument to be using this as a way to discuss the role that sort of conservative family values continue to play in parties like the Nationals and and the Liberals and the Coalition and the Labor Party to an extent uh and say well you know you know sort of make arguments about how those sorts of absolute family values are not something that you can enshrine in law in the way that they want to do because look that you know you can't even meet up to those standards rather than using it as as a way to sort of dive in deep into this affair and sort of attack Joyce again but to sort of use an example about why those moral values are sort of not good for public policy in many ways but you know it's very tricky territory about how to how you do that and what that looks like well maybe you know let's Get ourselves out of the depths of Barnaby Joyce's uh, affair. Ooh, was, where's,
0: was, where's that sentence yeah, going to end, Simon? I don't know. <laughs> let's,
1: just, I just said, let's get out of the depths of Barnaby Joyce's affair uh, and, and, and think about some of the bigger questions. Maybe going back to Gay Alcorn's quote, which I think was a really uh, interesting one. Um, you know, let's start with the question about what is it about sexual relationships that are so important compared to non-sexual relationships in the way that she's asked that question.
0: Yeah, it's tricky. I think you know because I feel like that like there are some fundamental sort of questions here about, like, the role of sexual relationships in the workplace that are worth talking about and worth discussing. I think, like, my position on this, you know, should like, should... And, and I guess, like, you know, the moral should is very different to the kind of, like, uh, policy should or the, yep, yep. the kind of regulatory should. But, um, you know, should people be having sex with their staff members or direct reports. I mean, I think like it's fair to say that in an ideal world, no, because that clearly creates all sorts of complicated power dynamics in a workplace that are genuinely really difficult to navigate. I think in an, in an ideal world, it's, it's possible to navigate those things, but, um but you know, it almost never kind of happens smoothly and easily. And so I think it is kind of worth avoiding those things. I think, Asking people to disclose those sorts of things is also potentially not a bad thing in, yep, in particular yep. circumstances. But, you know, to go back to that, the question about like what happens when you, when you ban things, um, banning it doesn't make sense because obviously, you know, people fuck and that happens and you sort of can't really avoid that. And, and you don't, when it does happen, you want to be able to kind of deal with that in the most constructive way possible. That said, obviously, like every workplace is built on intricate webs of nepotism and favoritism that is either explicit or implicit. You know, we talk about, uh, you know, uh, unconscious bias in hiring practices. That's just one example, but you know, the kind of kinds of things that Gail Alcorn is talking about in that quote about like explicit sort of, I mean, I guess mentoring kind of mm-hmm. relationships, but, but they're a bit less explicit than that. You know, those sorts of things happen all the time. I mean, and, and, kind of your ability to network and the kind of relationships. Like, I feel like most of the jobs I've had in my life as a kind of adult professional have have come about through networking in one way or another.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I 100% agree. I I mean, even think about what I'm doing now uh, as a a PhD student. I am someone who... Uh, made the decision that as a student I wanted to go into the office every day because I I got kind of got sick of working from home uh, and I, I you know I desired some of that social contact and. In going to the office, I am networking with the professors who are there. I'm networking with the other the other academics there, and through that, I am getting opportunities that a PhD student who might be working from home, but who is just as smart or smarter or is just as capable, are not getting because I'll be able to make those connections. You know, I'm 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 writing book chapters, or I'm uh, getting offers to teach, and all those kind of things that someone at home, because they don't know them, or they just they're not you know they're not quite as visible, wouldn't be getting even if they've got more skills to do so. All sort of work places are built around that. Um, but what's interesting is that I don't have to disclose those potential friendships with the head of school compared to if I was to be having sex with one of the professors, for example, and then I think that disclosure would have to be made. Uh and I guess that's the the context of what Dale kind of is getting to in that in that question about why is sex so much more important than those than those friendships, which often can potentially result in you know, greater opportunities than, than if you were to have a one-off sexual encounter.
0: Yeah, totally. And I think, you know, the fact that they go, perhaps the, the, the potential for bias there perhaps goes less examined than it might do around sex makes it even more potentially influential. You know, that like we sort of have this idea that if we're having sex with someone, then in a... You know, I mean, I say this as if this is a situation I've been in in a workplace, and it, it, it genuinely hasn't. In terms of being in a position to like hire or fire someone on the basis of whether or not having <laughs> sex with them, that decision has never been put in front of me. But you know, that there, that idea that that's something to keep in mind is is certainly out there. Whereas the, I don't know, it's almost like there's there's kind of a like a spectrum here where it's like there's like uh, professional intimacy and. You know, you have like contacts at work and people that you work well with and get along with, and that might kind of lead to certain advantages. And maybe there's a blurry line between that and when it becomes friendship. And then that, that's a kind of another space to negotiate. And then maybe there's another blurry line about when that becomes like a, an intimate or ro- romantic relationship. And then maybe that's another kind of space. But, but I guess the point I'm trying to make is that we see those things as like a, a sort of linear progression from less intimate to more intimate that, mm-hmm. and that sex is somehow like the, the the pinnacle of ways that we can be uh intimate with another person the ways that we can relate to another person and and i and i suppose representative of like i don't know the like an end point and i, and I should say i guess like the end point i guess would be like sex within the context of a romantic relationship is kind of the logical end point of like what intimacy between two people can look like.
1: And and maybe and, and this is kind of potentially getting to us to a bigger question about, you know, the big question about why is sex so important? Um, and not just in the case of, you know, it causes a scandal like this that is facing Butterby Joyce that is very different to if he just, you know, gave his mate a new job, for example, became really good friends with somebody. But also, why is sex so important in things like taxation and law and you know, in, in in you know all of those sorts of legal areas, and so we have to you know what what is so important about sex, and I think that for me, I was thinking about this when I you know in reflection on reading Gay's uh, article, you know, there's obviously lots of answers to this bigger, broader question about why do we think of sex as kind of the pinnacle of intimacy and I think it comes down for me it comes down and I'd love to you know sort of this is where I'd like to discuss this more I think it comes down to two things firstly it's obviously because sex is an important part of our lives it is an important uh, thing that we do and it's an important part of who we are it's in some ways the most uh, human you can be when you're having sex. It's the most, uh, physical you can be. It's sort of, a, I, don't, I don't like using this term, but it sort of brings you back to a sort of almost natural state, which is not quite, right, quite what I'm saying, <laughs> but you know, you know what I'm going to try to get at. It's, it's, it's a very, it's a very, I don't know. It's not even very, it's not a very human thing to do. It's just a very species thing to do a thing to do as a, as a, as a species. Um, but I think more importantly is that the reason, Why we're still so obsessed with sex is that sex plays an important social role as well. Uh, and it plays an important social role because sex leads to procreation and sex leads to new generations of people being born. And in in playing that important social role, it's not just a thing we do for fun. It's a thing we do that because it's important for society at times. Uh, that has led to a whole range of social mores that have followed followed around that to, to ensure that people are doing it in socially productive ways. At least that's how I see it. And that can lead down to some of these things where you see sex as being the most intimate thing because it is the thing that you do that is very important for society and being able to create children, at least for heterosexual people, to be able to create children, which is such a, like, considered to be such an important part of being a member of society as being able to sort of create the next generation. And so. Sex is given a very high position, and therefore this leads, in my view, to these sorts of ideas where you sort of, you know, sex is being seen as the as one of the most important social things we can do, and therefore the sort of pinnacle of intimacy. And yeah.
0: That's- I mean, yeah, I don't know if I would quite quite agree with that, or 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 I feel like there are. I'd want to tease apart a couple of things there. I feel yeah, like you're making too direct a connection between something I I would argue is a little more diffuse.
1: Yep, um, um, I mean, I just, there's a very good chance I am, I often do Sure,
0: <laughs> I mean like I would certainly agree that part of the reason, uh, a significant part of the reason why sex is so regulated and why so much attention is paid to sex by the state and by um, various institutions and, and social structures is because, is about kind of controlling reproduction and that being a, re- a really important um uh, uh, way that the state controls people and controls labor and blah, 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 blah. I, like, I, th- I think that that's true, but I, but I, I'd find it difficult to argue that that filters so directly down into our experience of sex as important in that way. I mean, mm-hmm. I think like I might make the argument that big, be- I mean, it's a bit of a kind of roundabout one, but like, I suppose. You could argue that because sex is treated as so uh, as as worthy of special consideration by the state, that's going to give it this sort of uh sort of abject value in people's lives, uh, and that maybe that kind of leads to, yeah, I don't know. Even even as I'm saying this, I don't I don't quite buy it. Yeah. I suppose. Like I suppose There's,
1: no 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 I'm just I'm 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 I'm, I'm interested in listening to you tease this out because I think it's I think this is the stuff we want to tease out I'm just we're...
0: totally I suppose I'm trying to like draw a thread between those two things that you've just done and I I'm, I'm not quite sure that thread is is there so directly I mean because mm-hmm. I mean for me I I think that the reason that like I think I think we need to talk about shame here I think that that's kind of a huge part of why why sex is is. Treated in the way it is, as so kind of taboo, I guess, and as so, uh, you know, something that's that's worthy of special consideration is because yeah. we have so much shame around it. Is because it is seen as this way of relating to people that is, and you know, like I I, I I don't like that kind of like naturalness stuff. And I know you were kind of just like using it as a as an example because I I think there are plenty of arguments you can make against. Um, the vast majority of sex as, as being natural in any way, the vast majority of being human as being natural in any yeah, way. Yeah,
1: absolutely, absolutely. And I, I was questioning my own use of the term natural as I was saying it, because sure, I yeah, yeah. better.
0: But uh, like, I think that something you can say for sex is that, that it is a lot of the time away of relating to someone else that, that is very, that makes you very vulnerable, you know, mm-hmm. because, you know, and that's, that's for all sorts of reasons. It's for kind of socially constructed reasons that are what's well, all for socially constructed reasons, but it, it's for very kind of like explicit, explicit social reasons about the fact that we see sex as something that should be done in private, as something that's not usually kind of talked about. Um, it's also very intensely related to usually kind of physical desire. Um, and that's seen as something that's, that's quite shameful and something that is somehow separate from our intellectual selves. Although you and I have talked, um, on this podcast about, you know, kind of questioning, questioning that notion. And so I think that those are the sorts of reasons I would, I would say that, that there is this kind of like heightened, I don't even know quite the best way to put it, but this, like, sort of focus on sex. Mm. And that I can see how that is, on a macro level, informed by uh, the impetus from the state to police it. But I suppose I see those things almost as, like, two sort of layers that have a relationship to each other, but it's not necessarily one of direct causality. It's more... Yeah, it's a little. It's a little more diffuse than that. I don't know if I'm making yeah. any sense.
1: No, no, you are making sense. I um, I think it's good that you bring that out. I guess maybe the way I've, I'm thinking about this, in, in, in sort of my academic brain at the moment, is almost seeing the difference between uh and the material, almost, and the cultural uh, it uh, which which what what I mean by that is sort of the stuff that I was talking about is sort of the the material, or the reasons for our that sex is regulated for uh, social sort of for for our society, what 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 it why the state wants to uh, regulate it, which is related to material the material needs of continuing an economy going on via through you know reproduction, which creates a new class of people that can be be working, and that's kind of the material reasons and then there's the cultural stuff which is often the you know for me the, you know the shame related stuff and the the discourse we have about sex and the uh the stuff about how we think about intimacy and and the and the role that plays in and has an impact on our sex life and the way we talk about sex in public in the media and the way we talk about sex in tv and 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 uh movies and all that kind of stuff and i think that those things feed off each other quite a lot. Uh, and maybe, maybe that's what you're getting at. I'm not quite sure, but those things feed, each, feed off each other. I think from my perspective, I think that there is a strong core, there, there is causation or the, you know, historical causation between that sort of the social need to regulate sex and a lot of the cultural practices that we engage with. Uh, but, that has become more diffuse as as it is quite diffuse now and you can't and often those sort of cultural practices have become ingrained even if they no longer have some sort of social need or some sort of need to prop up capitalism for example uh and and so in turn they're sort of becoming built that cultural practice becomes inbuilt within our psyche and, and i think that's very clear for example uh in queer communities where you have uh where sort of same sex relationships have been to an extent uh de-shamed in a way there's been a lot of progress around that yet where there's still a whole lot of internalized shame that exists within queer communities around our sexual practices uh that often in my perspective relates from a starting point in which sex was regulated and, and from the state and queer sex was and we were told that it was dirty and shameful and disgusting and that we had to stop it, etc. And that has created sort of a cultural history, a cultural memory that makes people still feel shameful about their sex and results in the regulation internally within queer communities of our own sexual practices. Uh, And that's, I mean, that's how I see those two things as being linked, I guess. Uh,
0: Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I feel like, you know, that's sort of like how this is just a kind of example of how discourse operates over time, Mm. you know, in, in history to, to, um, use that really vague term. I mean, I think when it comes to... The the interesting thing for me when it comes to queerness, I mean, I yeah, I don't know how I feel about that idea of, like, progress in the ways that, like, sex and shame... Shame is produced around sex in queer communities, I think, like... So, what do you mean
1: by progress...
0: Well, well, sorry, that was what you were saying before about you feel like we've made a lot more progress in queer communities. Did I misunderstand?
1: Oh, no, no. So uh, maybe progress isn't the right word. But I mean, that I think that there has been moves, I guess, to in terms of, you know, as homosexuality has become, I guess, more accepted in society in particular ways. Uh, I was trying to make the argument that, you know, some of our sexual practices is, is, is considered Less shameful, but that it, you know, or it might at least be said that it's considered, you know, that it's that it's no longer sh- it's it's no longer shamed in a way that it used to be. But that doesn't actually necessarily exist because of the sort of cultural practices that still, you know, the sort of the the ingrained shame that still exists within queer communities.
0: Yeah, it's funny. I, I feel like maybe. We were talking about this on another episode, or maybe I was just having a conversation with someone about this recently. That <laughs> this is a, this is a kind of is very comparable to some conversations we've had about marriage, where I don't think it's so much that queers. It's almost like we, I guess, have more options for the ways that our like sex and relationships can look like, mm-hmm. but that comes out of being cut off from. Being a part of the main option that most people have. So it's kind of like to say that we have more options is like has to come with this big caveat that it's sort of like we have more options, like in terms of perhaps, um, diversity, but, but we also just don't have access to like to being kind of mainstream. I think what's also interesting for me about the potential for queers around. Conceptions of sex and relationships is that there has been work in queer communities. It doesn't, it doesn't happen a lot anymore, but in, in, during gay liberation, you know, there was like, there was a huge amount of work done on kind of reimagining what sex can look like within communities and what sex can look like within relationships and imagining kind of ways of sex being part of community and relatedness. That's not just the domain of, um, not even not just the domain of kind of monogamous uh, one, like, two-people relationships, but not even necessarily the domain of, like, romantic relationships at all, you know, or, or even, like, hookups, you know, that friends could be having sex and and that be just, like, a kind of a part of friendship or, um, I don't know, within the spaces where you live or within, uh, I don't know, any sorts of spaces where you exist, that sex could be a part of that and that decoupling that from really intense feelings of, I don't know particular kinds of meaning I guess was uh was an important project uh as in some parts of gay liberation
1: and I think that's interesting because in many ways I think that at least from my experiences that is still true at a social level within gay communities even if it's not spoken about at a political level so I think that my experiences are that you know in 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 my going through gay male communities that uh that sex is often not given... Oh, it's still given a high value, but it's not got that same attachment that often I see in straight communities where it's if you have sex, then it creates all these complications. You know, that I, you know, there's, there's good research to suggest that gay men, for example, are more likely to be in open relationships and more likely to be having sex outside their relationship in a, in a consenting way with their partner and that that is less of a problem, uh, than it is in often straight relationships. I, uh, know of people and have been in situations where, you know, I have sex with a, a friend and it doesn't, Lead have to you know have to lead to that sort of big emotional investment that we, which way we think about it. But that's that sort of cultural practice is occurring at the same time as I think our politics, you know, a lot of respectability politics is moving away from that sort of discourse and is trying to actually disown that discourse in many ways. And I mean, have we talked about on the podcast the sort of reaction to the to the Victorian um, gay male survey that you dealt with a couple of years ago?
0: Oh, I'm sure, I'm sure we have. Yeah, but it was, but basically, I I was doing some some work uh, for an organisation at the time that was. Uh, that, that does a kind of annual, is part of an annual survey into the sexual and relationship uh, practices, among other things, of, of uh, gay men and men who have sex with men. And I did some kind of media around some interesting results from that, including um, that a high proportion of gay men are in non-monogamous relationships uh, and... Uh, the organisation was slammed by some marriage equality advocates who said, "You know, how dare you kind of say these sorts of things about the gay community while we're trying to fight for gay marriage? You're undermining uh, this fight." Um, really, uh, very strong, um, strong feelings from some people.
1: Yeah, and that's exactly the same kind of stuff I've received whenever I've written about being in a polyamorous relationship. I've, I've, I had up until last year very strong reactions that said. If you know this is fine for you, but please stop talking about this publicly because then you 'll be hurting our political cause and you 'll be making us look like we're all promiscuous and and sleeping around and all that kind of stuff and I'm like, you know my response was well what 's wrong if we're all promiscuous? if we have a a social movement that is trying to deny that, then maybe the problem is the social movement and not necessarily the act of people engaging in consensual sex that they 're enjoying uh but I think it you know it sort of highlighted. Maybe, maybe it highlights going back to where we started with this conversation, how a form of respectability politics has sort of bought into these concerns about sex in many ways and has sort of disbanded some of these potential opportunities of, of thinking about other ways that we can have sex and that we can sort of, D, you know, get rid of the idea that sex is, has to be the ultimate form of intimate relationship, even though it can also be the ultimate form of intimate relationship. And that depends on who you're having sex with and uh, what the kind of sex that you're having is. Uh, but it doesn't always have to sort of be at that top level. You can only have sex with the person who you're in love with after you get married, for example.
0: Hmm. I think the, the, the really important kind of caveat I would put on... Like, I feel like it would be easy to sort of take away from this that we're like, yeah, let's just like, you know free love, blah, 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 Mm. blah, you know, any kinds of, like, you know, we should be able to have sex with whoever we want. It doesn't need to mean anything. I mean, I think that, like, there's a sort of, uh, and Simon, this is something you and I've talked about uh, off the podcast as well, that there's a sort of danger of going down uh, a line of thinking that that sort of has the effect of, like, policing sex in kind of the opposite way that, like, yeah, absolutely. it creates this this pressure for people to to be engaged in certain kinds of sex within particular spaces and within particular communities that I think is just as damaging as you know enforcing people not to be having certain kinds of sex in, in yeah, certain yeah, kinds of sort
1: spaces. Of, you know. The discourse that says, you know, we're going to have free love and free sex, but if you want to be in a monogamous relationship, then what's wrong with you? Why totally. Why are you just totally enjoying sex? As that, a- I-
0: that idea that, like, anyone who doesn't want to do everything uh, is, is like, just has hang-ups or is frigid or whatever. And it certainly is an argument that has been used um, uh, against particularly uh, women in the in the context of, uh, you know, the sexual revolution of the, the 60s and 70s um, quite a bit. And there's there's been some great kind of particularly radical feminist critique of, of, of that sort of stuff. At, and I I don't think queer and particularly gay male spaces uh, always walk that line very well. Um, I think that there is kind of policing around. Well, in, I don't know. It's like this. It's like I, it's probably true of every community. But you know, we don't do nuance very well. Like it's either like it's either like don't be a slut or like don't be a prude. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and both of those positions are kind of shitty. Like I would like to think that we can just. Like, encourage people to be able to have the sex lives that they want to have. Uh, Yes. If it's, you know, consensual and you're not hurting anyone unless you want to be hurt and so on and so
1: forth. Consensually being hurt is okay if you're an adult to do that. Yes, Um, indeed. Yeah, but, you know, but I think that's a good end message here, being able to have the sex that you want to have. With and 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 to think about how we, you know how our society deals with that in that kind of way, um, and that can mean if you want to have sex with just one person, if you don't want to have sex at all, or if you want to have sex with as many people as you want, that's okay as long as it's consensual. Hmm. Uh,
0: and and we can leave um, completely redefining what sex and sexuality within relationships looks like, perhaps to a, a, a later date.
1: Yeah. I'd let, let's maybe that's another you know a few yeah. episodes probably next next week. <laughs> <laughs> If you would like to send us a question or a comment about any of our episodes or any sort of queer-related issue that uh, you've been thinking about, you can do so at queerspodcast at gmail.com.
0: So even if you genuinely have an idea for how we can revolutionise queer sex and relationships, we would like to hear it. You can also get in touch via Facebook or Twitter where we are at queerspodcast. We also have our personal social media accounts. I am on Twitter at Ben C. Riley. Simon is at Simon Copland. And he is also on Facebook at Simon Copland Writer.
1: You can also find the podcast on our brand new website, queerspodcast.com. Please go and have a look at it. Uh, we're very proud of it. You can also subscribe to us on iTunes uh, and please leave a review and rating as it helps other people find us. And thank you, as always, to Earbuds. Uh, We are very happy to be part of the Earbuds podcast network and you should go to Earbuds and check out the other podcasts that are on the network.
0: Yeah, lots of great shows and Earbuds have been just, uh, since we've been a part of the network, really supportive of us. Um, through promoting and helping us out with uh, technical stuff here and there And just gen- generally um, supporting us So so thank you yeah, very much
1: Some really great folks there I'm really really happy we joined. We managed to join up with them
0: mm, Yeah, me too uh, Finally, the best way we have to get new listeners Is if you would tell a friend If you have someone you know who might like to listen to our ramblings And our smut uh, Let them know And they should sign up to the podcast as well
1: Sorry, for a second there, I think you said, and our smart, and then you finished the sentence. So I was like, that doesn't sound very smart, but you said smart. <laughs> smart. But you said or it's smart. S- smart. Always a few saying smart, Simon. Yeah, fair enough, fair enough. Thank you, as always, for listening, and we will be back in a couple of weeks with a new episode. Earbuds, Melbourne's podcast network. Earbudsnetwork.com. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout.
0: Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records.